Hi guys, welcome back to part two of episode 137 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. I'm recording this like in the morning, which I don't normally do. I usually feel more like myself um, recording at night and a bit more kind of energised. But Yoko is going crazy at the moment at a bird that is tweeting outside. Oh, I've this morning... (laughs) I have been completely soaked through in two torrential downpours uh, doing things uh, and then I sat down to record this and I spilt an iced coffee all over my uh, laptop keyboard and I followed instructions online. I hope it's salvageable uh, because otherwise I'm screwed <laughs> uh, and it's currently draining. So I'm doing this off my phone at the moment. Uh, but I'm glad that you guys enjoyed part one, uh, learning a little bit about Leonardo da Vinci. He's such an interesting guy, isn't he? Like such a cool guy. Uh, so first off, I just want to say for this particular part, part two, where we're going to talk about the theft of the Mona Lisa, how it happened, uh, and some subsequent information that you might find interesting uh, about her movements in the last century. There's an awesome article by Vanity Fair who always does really great long-form pieces. Uh, It was written by Dorothy and Thomas Hubler in 2009 and the title is Stealing Mona Lisa. It's available on their website and they excerpt parts of a book called The Crimes of Paris, A True Story of Murder, Theft and Detection. Um, which is their own book. So it was kind of like a little press for themselves and they deserve it. This part is like a awesome mystery um, where no one gets hurt. Uh, we're stepping away from that for this week, but it's just twists and turns and uh, awesome, you know, old school detective work. And I hope that you find it interesting. Uh, so this will be in the future. I plan to do quite a lot of art thefts, including uh Nazi art thefts. Uh, I continue to kind of add different segments on just in case you haven't noticed. So on my spreadsheet I work off that has all cases that I choose uh, listed on it. I've got an unsolved tab, a solved tab, a fugitives tab, a locked up abroad tab, a cruise ships tab, a missing planes tab, a uh, art thefts tab. (laughs) So uh, I just keep adding on subcategories. So I hope that you like it and this will get you through the end of the week and then I will be taking a much needed break for a week and switching off over the weekend to try to get some screen free time, which I feel like I really need at the moment. Uh, So we will begin where part one began for part two. Uh, this will be the Louvre Museum in Paris, the largest museum in the world, the most visited museum in the world, and also home to the most expensive piece of art in the world, which we talked about at length, her creation on part one, the Mona Lisa. This brings us to August 21st, 1911. Now, I always like to kind of see what the weather was like and position myself there. And thanks to the website Extreme Weather Watch, they actually track the last century of weather. And I was really shocked by the weather in Paris on this day, even though it was August. August in Paris, 
I don't know if historically it's always been the case, but it usually empties out of locals today. Um, one of my clients lives in Paris and she says it's pretty much deserted where people leave the city in order to go to the coast uh, to enjoy the beaches and things like that outside of Paris because Paris is not on the coast. But when I looked up the weather, I knew that it was the rainiest or one of the rainiest seasons in Paris of the year. Uh, but normally it doesn't really get that hot. Well, I'm an Australian, so I'm a little bit biased. I think anything over 35 degrees is hot. <laughs> but it said that it was 104 Fahrenheit on the 21st. And for the week leading up to it, it was around that too. So when I looked that up, it was 40 degrees and Celsius. And I was just shocked because it doesn't normally get to that temperature. So to position yourself there, it would have been stifling in the city of Paris at the time. And I very much doubt that the Louvre had air conditioning because I don't think it existed then. Uh, So things would have been pretty warm. So August 21st, 1911 was a Monday. The Louvre is historically closed for one day a week for maintenance and cleaning when there aren't any tourists or visitors in there and they're able to get things done. And Monday was that day in 1911. Today it is Tuesdays that it is shut. Most of them, most museums in Paris close around midweek for one week for this purpose. The now famous glass pyramid that everyone knows the Louvre for um, that is positioned outside the Louvre didn't exist then. It was just the original um, centuries old building uh, that today spans over a million, half a million square feet. Today at the Louvre, the staff is around 3,000 people who work there. That includes everyone. Today, there's 65 curators and 145 art conservationists whose basic job is to maintain the pieces. And if you want to find something funny, look up bad examples of art conservation. It's one of my friend, Lorena, who's been on this podcast before, her favourite topics, where they completely butcher amazing pieces of art, but the ones at the Louvre are the best in the business. Uh, The curators, you know, they're from various departments because the Louvre today is divided into all these different departments. You've got ancient Egypt, ancient Greece. Uh, It's so well organised. It's a full year-round operation to keep this place going. And because so many million people visit it a year and it's the most visited museum in Paris, that's why there's 3,000 people working there. There's also tour guides and gift shop workers and cleaners and security. Uh, It even has today its own on-call squad of firefighters whose job is just to sit around and wait to see if there is a fire at the Louvre because they'll get there immediately because... You can only imagine one of the biggest fears at the Louvre uh, for workers there is that there'll be a fire and that they'll lose this priceless artwork. 111 years ago, though, while the staff was likely not of the same size it is today, the mission to maintain this museum was much the same. And as I talked about on part one, Napoleon had made one of his missions in relation to the arts the fact that he wanted to open them up to the public so that it wasn't just the aristocracy anymore who got access to look at this incredible art. And as a result, people came from all over Paris and all over France, all over Europe and all over the world at the time to visit the Louvre. And it was, as it is today, one of 
the magnets that brought people to Paris. But this massive museum at the time was much the same and the museum really needed their closed Mondays to maintain and clean the place, especially considering Sundays the day before was the busiest day of the week. On Mondays in 1911, the only staff that were on duty were really a skeleton staff. It was comprised of maintenance workers, cleaning staff, curators and a few other employees uh, that did odd jobs throughout the massive halls and galleries of this esteemed museum. The Louvre's maintenance director at the time was a man called Piquet and his job was basically to document every single piece. He knew the place like the back of his hand. To get a job like this would have been incredibly hard and today it would be near impossible no matter how good you were with art. Um, And to ensure that everything was completely perfect, up to date and maintained and that the business was trucking along uh, as best it could. And most of the maintenance team and cleaners and things like that, their uniform at the Louvre in 1911 were white smocks like art smocks. At this time the Mona Lisa was stored in a room called the Salon Carré which means square room. This gallery at the time held two Leonardo da Vinci pieces. One was the Mona Lisa and a handful of other paintings by both French and international artists including Rubens, Rembrandt, Raphael and the list goes on. There was about 10 in the room but the Mona Lisa was the centrepiece and she was very carefully cared for. According to Vanity Fair, quote, the painting itself weighs approximately 18 pounds since Leonardo painted it not on canvas but on three slabs of wood, a fairly common practice during the Renaissance. A few months earlier, the museum's directors had taken steps to physically protect the Mona Lisa by reinforcing it with a massive wooden brace and placing it inside a glass-fronted box, adding 150 pounds to its weight. The decorative Renaissance frame brought the total to nearly 200 pounds. However, only four sturdy hooks held it there, no more securely than if it had been hung in the house of a bourgeois Parisian, unquote. So all of this stuff and then it's only held on by the four hooks. Now, the reason that the Louvre gave for it, these very basic hooks holding this massive brace and glass and frame and box there was that if there was a fire, uh, they needed to very easily be able to remove it from the wall and to run with it, basically. But I also just want to make clear that because, as we talked about in part one, the Mona Lisa is done on poplar, uh, which essentially is a wood material, and it can't be rolled up like a poster would be or a canvas. Uh, It's not possible because it's actually so thick, not that anybody like you or me will ever get close enough to examine it um, that closely. Not many people do. So the maintenance director Piquet would do daily rounds of the museum as part of his role starting very early in the morning and he knew the Louvre like the back of his hand. This was no small feat. The Louvre is peppered not only with the giant galleries that visitors visit but it's also got lots of tiny rooms that are used for all kinds of different purposes and lots of hidden little alcoves. A lot of them are used for students that are 
at the time in 1911, they allowed art students to come and practice using um, their easels and um, their materials. They were able to practice painting or, you know, basic basically replicas of famous artworks to hone their craft, but also storage rooms and maintenance rooms and the offices of the curators and staff rooms and things like that. And most staff even today don't even know half of the layout of the Louvre. They just know the areas that they have to work in. The morning of August 21st, 1911, Piquet's day began just after 7am He passed through the Salon Carré and there was the Mona Lisa in all her tiny glory (laughs) on the wall. He was walking with a colleague and he just kind of made a throwaway comment that he would always remember. And he said to the colleague, quote, they say it's worth a million and a half, unquote. So that was at the time what it was worth. Uh, Today, as I talked about on part one, it's worth... If you put a monetary value on it, it's like a billion dollars, but technically it's priceless. You really can't add a monetary value to it. Piquet then went about his rounds throughout the rest of the Louvre. An hour later at 8.35, Piquet then passed, again passed through the second floor Salon Carré and the Mona Lisa was not there. Only the four pegs that held her massive 200-pound frame uh, that housed the actual tiny piece remained. Now, the funny thing is I didn't want to – I wanted to bury the lead a little bit at the start of part one um, because I said that they called the police – But I wanted to kind of hold off on telling you what really happened until part two, because it's almost like a comedy of errors and it would make a really good movie, actually. And they did make a movie about this, I think, in 1931. So it's virtually impossible to find that movie. But no one called the police immediately because Piquet would have been the one to sound the alarm and he did not think anything of this. He knew that the Mona Lisa was not due for maintenance, but he also knew that paintings were regularly taken down off the wall to be used by the museum's photographers to take photos of them and things like that uh, to then, you know, circulate to different publications and things. And there was usually a reason why paintings would be taken off walls and then put back up not long after. Um, These pieces in particularly the Mona Lisa, were regularly taken to studios throughout the Louvre to be photographed. So Piquet, even though it was his job, didn't think anything of it. He even remarked to one of the workers in the Salon Carré, quote, I guess the authorities have removed it because they thought we would steal it, unquote, ha ha ha. Nobody else commented on this all day. And it seems to be an example of the passerby effect. No one, everyone always kind of thinks that someone else will deal with it or if it's a big deal, someone else will deal with it. But Monday evening rolled around and everyone headed home and the Louvre was locked up for the night. And then Tuesday morning rolled around and thankfully a student artist arrived at the Louvre that morning who decided to start asking some questions. He would regularly turn up with his easel and his paints and his materials and he would position himself in front of some of the most famous pieces um, in order to 
do his own interpretations of them. Um, and he was in the Salon Carré that day and it stood out to him that the Mona Lisa was not there. And he asked a guard who was positioned in the Salon Carré, where is the Mona Lisa? And the guard shrugged. He just assumed as well that it was off for some purpose and as a security guard it wasn't really up to him who had it at any one time. He just reacted to things as they happened. But this young artist had a very strange feeling and he asked the guard to go and ask the photographers when they would be done with it, thinking that's where it was. So the guard actually went to inquire, thankfully, and the photographers in their little studio room denied having ever touched the Mona Lisa yesterday or today. They then checked with the curators of the Mona Lisa as people started to arrive for the day and maintenance and nobody was due to work on the Mona Lisa. And then all hell broke loose. They quickly, in a small enclosed stairwell next to the Salon Carré, found the entire protective frame and gear um, stored. Essentially, it looked like someone had taken it off the wall, taken it into this small enclosed stairwell, stripped it of its uh, frame and its glassware and everything that added up to about 180 pounds and then had somehow got out of the museum. The director of the museum was on a holiday, which I'm sure was rudely interrupted. So then the acting head who was taking over for the director that week, a man called Georges Benedict, was told of what was happening, which was probably the worst day in his working life. Someone ran into his office and screamed, Elle est partie, which means she is gone. So... Around 30 hours after the Mona Lisa was stolen, seemingly in broad daylight from her home in the Louvre, the police were on the case and valuable time had been lost. And police took this incredibly seriously, um, as you can imagine. They set up roadblocks throughout Paris, searching any car, vehicle or truck leaving the city. Anyone carrying a package was stopped and one of the funny things that Vanity Fair talks about is that one of the people stopped for carrying a package which was totally unrelated to it was a young artist at the time who had moved from Spain to Paris and was living in Montmartre um, along with other creatives for a time. You may know him, his name was Pablo Picasso. Um, now, <laughs> that always makes me think of Titanic, what does Billy Zane say? He'll never amount to a thing. He won't. Anyone leaving France was searched by customs and that included ships and even a ship that had made its way uh, over the last, you know, day and was crossing the uh, Atlantic was intercepted uh, and searched in New York City. Uh, and everybody, including first class through to steerage, was searched. Uh, they really did not hold back. Paris's top magazine at the time was called L'Illustration and they got really colourful with their language. Quote, what audacious criminal, what mystifier, what maniac collector, what insane lover has committed this abduction? Unquote. The paper was so appalled about the stealing of the Mona Lisa that they offered up their own reward separate from the police completely. It was 40,000 francs at the time, which I can't tell you how much that was, but it was, it was a pretty decent amount, I believe. Basically, the 
person who had it, they had to deliver the painting to the office of L'Illustration in order to get this reward. But then Paris's rival paper, the Paris Journal, offered 50,000 francs and Vanity Fair talks about this ridiculous bidding war um, in order to basically get it back and to be, I guess, position themselves as heroes, uh, which paper... Staff rostered on at the Louvre on the mundane question were interrogated and pretty much every staff member, past and present, was looked at. This is when investigators began to put together a timeline of seemingly strange occurrences that at the time no one had thought was much of anything, but now it definitely seemed related. And one or two potential sightings of the person in question. The stairwell that the Mona Lisa's protective gear, including her glass case, frame and brace were found in, basically was a tiny little alcove that led down to a door. Um, Now, this door led to the first floor of the Louvre, which would then lead out the main exit or slash entrance. And this door was usually locked, which the police believed that the thief probably had not been aware of. They'd taken it from the wall, gone into this stairwell and thought that they could just walk down and walk out. But it turned out that the door was locked. So then when they spoke to a Louvre plumber who came forward, they came forward with an interesting story um, that had happened around 7.30 in the morning or just after Minutes after they believed the theft to have happened, the plumber had come down the stairs on his rounds. He'd actually entered this stairwell um, and he'd come face to face with a man that he, based on what the man was wearing, a white smock, which the employees wore, he believed him to be an employee. He didn't appear to be carrying anything, um, but the man had basically said, that door down the bottom of the stairwell is locked and I need access to it. But he also said to the plumber, I can't get out because the doorknob's missing. Now, the plumber didn't think too much of this. He went down the stairs with this man. He took out some pliers in his toolkit and he opened the door with ease. And yes, the doorknob was missing. The man thanked him and the plumber actually said to him, oh, we should probably prop open this door and just leave it open just in case anyone needs access to it because they may get stuck in the stairwell. And the, th- the person said back to him, yeah, that sounds good. And the two went their separate ways. Later, this plumber would be sat down and given hundreds of photos of past and present museum workers uh, to identify the man and seemingly he just couldn't. And I'm sure that after looking at hundreds of pictures, they all looked the same, especially considering he was probably in quite a dimly lit stairwell. He'd only looked at this man, you know, briefly and then on he went. The main entrance slash exit of the Louvre that visitors pass through is usually has a guard, a security guard there, and they did in 1911. Unfortunately, around the time that they believed that the thief had walked down that stairwell across the first floor and exited, this main entrance guard had left his post for a few minutes to do something and he did not see anyone leave or enter and no other guards did either. Then a man came forward from the public with another story. He had heard about the theft and he came forward with information he thought might be valuable. Around that time on the Monday morning, he had been passing the Louvre on foot heading to work when he saw a man who seemed to have exited the Louvre and entered onto the street throw a shiny metal object on into a ditch in the street. 
The man, as he had walked away, and this man who witnessed it walked to the ditch and looked closer at what the man had thrown away, and it was a metal doorknob. He then left it there. (laughs) Now, the police were able to ultimately obtain this once this man told the story, and it would lead to their only physical clue. It was the metal doorknob that had looked like it had been removed with a screwdriver um, in order to gain access through the door, but the thief had accidentally removed it from the door um, when he had asked for help from the plumber. And it had one fingerprint on it, and that was all they had to go on. These were the only eyewitness sightings that August morning, and It appeared, as the police put it together, that at least one person had been involved in this, that they'd gained access to the museum either on the Monday morning or the day before, and they'd chosen the Monday because there would be less people around. They had dressed as staff, or they were current staff, or past staff. They had a knowledge of the different alcoves and stairwells of the Louvre, They stole the piece and then they were unwittingly sprung trying to open the locked door with a screwdriver and remove the doorknob before the plumber arrived. They then, luckily for them, were able to get through the door thanks to the plumber. They strolled through the first floor, out the main entrance and into the busy Monday morning streets of Paris where they were lost in the crowd. And then nothing happened. The weeks went on. The French started finger-pointing at everyone, particularly Americans. They believed that um, some wealthy American businessman could have been behind it and were very vocal about it because he was a pretty prolific art collector. And then, as is expected in cases like this, the hoaxes started, especially when you consider what I talked about on part one with the levels of poverty at this time. The belle, la belle époque means the beautiful time, but it wasn't a beautiful time for a lot of people. Men arrived to French newspaper offices or contacted them, saying that they had the Mona Lisa and they wanted money for it in order to return it. And this is what always happens when there's a reward up. The Louvre had actually closed over August as a result of the theft, but they reopened in September and people actually came just to look at the empty wall, like some sort of mausoleum almost of something. And Vanity Fair talks about how another famous name, Franz Kafka, who from memory he's Czech, um, from the Czech Republic, he was a writer, I wrote Metamorphosis and things like that. Um, when I've been to Prague, there's a lot of stuff about Kafka, so I believe he's from Prague. He actually visited the Louvre around this time and he wrote about this experience in his diary. He wrote, quote, the excitement and the knots of people as if the Mona Lisa had just been stolen, unquote. According to Vanity Fair, some people even bought bouquets of flowers and put them underneath where the Mona Lisa had once been, like it was some sort of what people do at a spot where people, you know, are killed in a car accident or something like that. It was that intense for Parisians. Sightings came in from all over the world, as far away as Japan, but none were deemed credible. Eventually, the Louvre made the choice to put a replica in place in the Salon Carré, but this didn't last long because this upset people so much that they actually ended up taking it down and replacing it with a Raphael. It just upset people because it just wasn't 
it wasn't the piece. You'd feel so kind of, um, you know, shortchanged. I always find the idea of they have replicas of most pieces. It's really interesting. And when I went to Auschwitz, like, um, oh, 12 years ago, local kids had actually stolen the famous sign that goes over the entrance to Auschwitz that says in German, work makes you free. And it's actually a replica what they had up at the time. And I just thought it was so interesting that they had a replica of such a horrific thing and that that was someone's job to put that together, some sort of, because it's like wrought iron. But they were very upfront when we walked through, because you have to do a tour at Auschwitz, they said, um, this is a replica. It had been stolen. We've recovered it. I have no idea how it was stolen. Um, we've recovered it and it, it was damaged. So we're, we're restoring it and putting it back together and it, the original should be up soon. But then a year passed with no Mona Lisa and no clues. And then two years passed. Most of the people, including the owners of the Louvre and the directors and the staff, came to realise that this 500-year-old Leonardo da Vinci piece that was so priceless and meant so much to people, maybe no one would ever see it again. That brings us to November 1913, two and a half years after the theft of the Mona Lisa and we go right back to Florence, the original home of the Mona Lisa and the birthplace of da Vinci and really the world capital of Renaissance art. And that brings us to the office of an international art dealer called Alfredo. Now, if he was French, he'd be Jerry. Um, I'm going with Jerry for this, but it could also be Gary. It's G-E-R-I. There's a couple of G's in this because I speak, I did French for like six years, but I'd it depends on where people are from if you hit that hard G. So I'm sorry for a couple of names in this because uh, people say it differently. But Alfredo Jerry, he received a letter in his office. The postmark on it was a P.O. box in Paris. When he read the letter, he was intrigued. The letter came from a man who called himself Leonard and he had a story for Alfredo but also a proposal for him. He wrote that he was Italian, that he was not wealthy, and he also wrote that he had the Mona Lisa in his possession. Leonard wrote that as an Italian, he was disgusted that the French had possession of the Mona Lisa, and he believed that she belonged in Italy. He wrote in the letter that he had been, quote, suddenly seized with the desire to return to his country at least one of the many treasures which, especially in the Napoleonic era, had been stolen from Italy, unquote. Now, Vanity Fair very wisely after that points out that he seemingly didn't know or didn't care to know that the Mona Lisa had come into the possession of France about 200 years before Napoleon was even born. So it had nothing to do uh, with Napoleon at all. He said in the letter that he was not asking for a set price for the Mona Lisa's return, but if Italy, her, the country that she belonged to, were to offer a reward, he would take it. So he seemingly felt that he was a patriot and a hero. Now, hoaxes were common by this stage, but Alfredo Jerry's gut told him just to follow this and see where it led. And luckily he did. Florence's 
major art museum, as I talked about on part one, is called the Uffizi Gallery. It's essentially the Florence's answer to the Louvre. And if you ever get the opportunity to go to Florence, you have to visit the Uffizi. It's it's incredible. In November 1913, the director position, which is a highly revered position, was a man called Giovanni Poggi. Now, P-O-G-G-I. Obviously, he's an art dealer. Um, Alfredo Jerry knew Poggy, so I'm going to call them Jerry and Poggy from now on. So he called him up at the Uffizi to discuss the letter that he'd just received. Together, they both decided that probably what was going on was that this person was trying to offload a forgery of it to make some fast money. And Poggy told like Jerry basically that he had photos of the piece um, that he'd taken at the Louvre himself uh, that basically showed specific marks that no forger, no forger would ever know about on the Mona Lisa and that these marks would be the giveaway to the authenticity of a piece. So he instructed Jerry to reply and to ask this mysterious Leonard to come to Florence and to bring the piece with him. He basically made it clear in the letter, in reply, we're not getting the police involved, don't worry, this is just between you, me, and the director of the Uffizi, and he set up a date for this. Now, basically, Leonard replied, and he agreed to the date, but then he sent another letter and he cancelled the date, and this happened two more times, and Jerry and Poggy figured that this was a hoax after all, and the person had got cold feet, that they wouldn't be able to pull the wool over these two experts' eyes. Then in December 1913, Jerry received yet another telegram from Leonard. This one, though, he said that he was in Milan, north of Florence, and that he would be travelling down to Florence and he would be there the following day. Now, Jerry started to panic a little bit. Poggy had taken a bit of a holiday. He was currently in Bologna in Italy and Jerry really needed Poggy there to figure out whether or not this was a real piece. So he sent a telegram to Poggy urgently in Bologna and he wrote, quote, our party coming from Milan will be here with object tomorrow. Need you here. Please respond, Jerry, unquote. Poggy replied back and said that he was basically could come back as fast as he could uh, and that he'd be back the day after tomorrow, which was a Thursday, and that he would have to, Jerry would basically have to stall this Leonard, which made Jerry very nervous. So the next day a young man arrived at Jerry's office and he was finally there, Leonard. He was tall, he was slim, he had a moustache and he was quiet, kind of, didn't look particularly rich, didn't look particularly poor. He was just a nondescript kind of guy, clearly Italian um, and in a suit and tie. When Jerry asked where the supposed Mona Lisa was, this man, Leonard, said that she was back in his hotel room, which started to make Jerry a little bit more nervous Now, when Jerry decided to ask a few questions before going to the hotel, remember he's stalling because he needs to go with Poggy to the hotel. Um, Or it's probably Poggy, actually. I'm just going to keep going with Poggy. Sorry, Italians. When questioned about the authenticity of the painting uh, by Jerry, Leonard replied, quote, we are dealing with the real Mona Lisa. I have good reason to be sure. Unquote. Now, when Jerry asked him how he could be sure, 
Leonard replied it was because he had taken the painting from the Louvre himself off the wall and left with it. Jerry asked him, was it just you that did it? And it was at that point that Leonard started to get a little bit weird. Jerry said later that he was, quote, not too clear on that point. He seemed to say yes, but didn't quite do so. But his answer was more yes than no, unquote, which will come into play later. But Leonard wanted to talk money before anything happened. And he very boldly asked for 500,000 lira. The lira at the time, up until 1999, when they went to the euro, was the Italian currency. And as Vanity Fair points out, half a million lira was around $100,000 at the time. It was a huge amount. Uh, And no one had said that he was going to get this amount. Um, But then again, the actual piece was worth a lot more than that at the time. But Jerry just decided to play it cool. And despite having no confirmation that they were able to pay Leonard this, he said that was totally fine. He actually kind of played it so cool. He said to Leonard that it was a bit on the low side, uh, trying to get him on board. So he arranged with Leonard to meet the following day to get the painting. He said to him, we have to wait for Poggy to come back. He's the guy who's just going to come with me to you know, figure out this whole thing and then you'll get your money and you'll be on your way. So the following day, Poggy was back and with Jerry waiting in his office for Leonard, who was late. So it was a very nervous 20 minutes that Leonard was late. But finally he arrived and the three men set off on foot for Leonard's hotel room, which was not very far from the Duomo, which is the big cathedral or basilica in the centre of Florence, which uh, most people kind of know. Jerry said later on that he and Poggy were really, really nervous about what was about to transpire. They had no idea what was going to happen, but Leonard was seemingly not affected by this at all. So he took them to a hotel called Hotel Tripoli Italia on a little side street just a few blocks from the Duomo and they went upstairs to the third floor where Leonard's small little rented hotel room was. He bent down and from under the bed he took out a suitcase that was white wood because you know back then suitcases were generally wooden he opened up the lid and Jerry was immediately like oh this isn't going to eventuate There was no Mona Lisa. It was filled with, quote, wretched objects, broken shoes, a mangled hat, a pair of pliers, plastering tools, a smock, some paintbrushes, and even a mandolin, unquote. But as Leonard removed these one by one and threw them aside, Jerry quickly realised that there was what seemed to be a fake bottom in the suitcase. Leonard removed this fake bottom of the trunk And underneath, they saw something wrapped in red silk. Leonard lifted up the case and took it to the bed and removed this object. And then he started to unwrap it. And Jerry would later recall, quote, To our astonished eyes, the divine Mona Lisa appeared intact and marvellously preserved, unquote. You can imagine how these two men felt. They've just cracked the biggest art theft of all time just by what they thought was humouring a hoaxer, really. They carried the painting to a window to get better light to look at it and Poggy barely needed seconds to look at it to know that it was authentic. 
even the Louvre's catalogue number and stamp, which was on all belongings of the Louvre, was on the back, something that a forger just couldn't have done. And the two men were in complete shock. But they weren't about to let this man get away with it just yet. Jerry and Poggy told Leonard that before any money could be given to him and he could leave Florence, the Uffizi gallery would have to confirm that it was real. So the men would have to take it back to the Uffizi just a few blocks away. So they all headed there on foot. At the Uffizi, Poggy was able to look at the photographs that he'd taken of the Mona Lisa at the Louvre. And these little sections that he'd particularly taken photos of were things that you just couldn't ever emulate. And they were all visible on this piece that they were just holding in their hands. So there was a small vertical crack in one corner of a panel and that matched the ones in the photos. But the biggest one were basically what they call crackleur, uh, which basically means cracks in paint uh, that appears as the surface dries and ages. You can kind of, as Vanity Fair went into, you can kind of replicate this, but not to the extent that the Mona Lisa had them. And these all matched up perfectly. Poggy and Jerry then explained to Leonard that it would be best if he left the painting at the Uffizi just for the night. They had to contact their local government um, connections that they were dealing with for the money because they couldn't authorise the payment alone. But not to worry, everything was totally fine. Leonard seemed a little bit like, oh. But at this point, they'd won him over so much that he just kind of thought, yep, everything's all fine, I guess, and I'll just have to wait. So he finally agreed, but he did say to them, I'm kind of running out of money here because all this travel in Florence is really expensive. And they said, don't worry, you'll be a very rich man soon. They then shook his hand. They thanked him for being a patriot to Italy. They really hammed that up. They shook hands with him. Um, They vowed that he would always be anonymous. And the minute that Leonard left their offices, they called the police. (laughs) It kind of reminded me of um, BTK being caught with the floppy disk and how the cops got him on board and said, we can't trace you and don't worry, we're your friends, Dennis, and all that stuff. These people never seem to think that someone will dob them in or that people could just be good actors. And I personally think that uh, Jerry and Poggy are the heroes. They've been dead a long time and they're just cool guys. By the time Leonard arrived back mere minutes later to his hotel, the police were at his door and they said he looked quote unquote astonished, much like BTK. Just he couldn't believe that he'd had the wool pulled over his eyes by these two men that seemed to have really earned his trust. That night, the head curator of the Louvre received a phone call from a reporter with a tip that the Mona Lisa had been found in Florence and he hung up on him because he presumed this was a hoax too. But by the next day, the Louvre had official co- you know, confirmation that they believed that they had the Mona Lisa and they released a statement saying until they personally saw and confirmed that this was not a forgery or a replica, they would not be making any comment. And then in Italy, the discussion started in politics, in government, as to whether they should return it at all. 
Suddenly it went from elation that they'd recovered this incredible priceless piece to maybe we should keep it considering it is ours. It seems that Leonard probably had a few people on board with his thinking that this was an Italian piece from an Italian painter and it doesn't belong in Paris. And I've always thought that it's a bit strange that it's in the Louvre, but it's it's just, you know, the way it is. And it's, you know, it doesn't really matter at this point in time. There's a lot in the Uffizi that you can see. And they thought about keeping it in the Uffizi, but finally the French decided to as an olive leaf and they made a very nice statement about it. Uh, the Italians, sorry, they said we would return it to its foster home, which was in the in the uh statement they made, which I really like, uh, which was the Louvre. And by January 4th, 1914, just the year before the First World War would kick off, Mona Lisa was back in her old bedroom in the Salon Carré, the exact same salon she had been stolen from. And 100,000 people visited her in two short days to welcome her back. While Parisians and the French were celebrating the return of the Mona Lisa, down in Italy, the investigation into who this man was and what they were going to do with him was unfolding. And investigators very quickly realised that, as you've probably guessed, Leonard was not a Leonard. He was an Italian man called Vincenzo Perugia. Now, Perugia, which I believe the G's like that. Um, I don't think it's Perugia. Um, if you if that sounds familiar to you, it's actually a city in central Italy, and it's actually where the whole Amanda Knox thing happened. Probably a case I'm not going to do. Um, just for a number of reasons, like I'm kind of so many people have covered it. It's a bit like Natalie Holloway and other cases I try to avoid just too much has been done um and as much as I don't believe she's guilty I don't like her so there's that now uh Parisia is that city and I don't know if the connection the name originally comes from you know much like da Vinci that's one of the many similarities I found with between uh, Vincenzo Perugia and da Vinci just little kind of little kind of things that line up with each other. Um, but there's that. But Perugia, the city, is uh, spelt with one G, whereas according to most sources, Vincenzo's surname is spelt with two Gs. So Vincenzo Perugia was born on October 8th, 1881, in the small village of Dumenza, which is in the region of Lombardy, which is in kind of northern Italy. It's near Lake Como. It's uh, about an hour from Milan in Italy's north. He was actually born Pietro Vincenzo Antonio Perugia. And for a second there, I thought, oh, he had a similar name to da Vinci, but then it was uh, Piero was one of, one of da Vinci's names, whereas this was Pietro. But for his whole life, pretty much up until he did this, he went by Vincenzo. He used one of his middle names. As a young man, little is known about Vincenzo's life. It was, by all accounts, relatively average. He was a bit of a budding artist with a passion for art. But as a young adult, he moved to France because there was no work in Italy. And he was really disheartened by this. I believe this is where kind of his hatred of the French started. Um, and he was disheartened that his artistic career stalled and there wasn't a lot of opportunity. So he got by painting houses. 
In mid-1910, when he was almost 30, Perugia found himself in Paris, most likely living in relatively poorer conditions that the majority of the city lived in as outlined in part one. He secured a relatively good job as a contractor at the Louvre and there's a good website called uh, Mona, uh, it's MonaLisaMissing.com which filled in a few gaps for me on this and it actually kind of said that he was contracted as a contractor through a company he worked for who was basically hired and tasked with building protective cases for 1,600 pieces uh, throughout the Louvre. The Louvre was looking to reinforce the cases um, and make sure that they were actually more worried about vandalism than theft. They were scared of people coming to the Louvre and doing things to the paintings, which <laughs> I'll get into how they weren't totally off the mark with that. Um, so in October 1910, he was basically hired for this contractor role to do that. And according to Vanity Fair, um, this is when he worked for the first time with the Mona Lisa and maybe where he got the idea to steal it because he knew exactly how its protective case worked because he was actually trained as a carpenter and he, he helped put the case together. Personality-wise, he was a calm man. He was not easily flustered, although he would start getting quite uh, unhinged later on. And he showed very little emotion, it seems, as a young man. And there's nothing really written about him when he was an employee of the Louvre or by um, any of the people who came up against him, Jerry or Poggy or anything. He seemed very mellow and chilled out considering the circumstances but as he got to his trial he began to unleash quite a lot but really to me I this is not a case of mental illness or anything like that it's just a man who got an idea to do something and did it he worked at the Louvre for around four months and this commenced, this wrapped up this task that they were contracted to do around January 1911 around eight months before he would steal the Mona Lisa. And he openly confessed upon his re his arrest to what he did. He offered up every single piece of information he could in great detail. He seemed to be enjoying it quite a lot. He then, steamingly, when his contract was up, stopped working at the Louvre, but by then he'd accrued the information that he needed. And according to his first confession, when he was arrested in Florence, on the Sunday, the day before the theft of the Mona Lisa, Sunday, August 20th, the Louvre's busiest day, he headed to the Louvre not long before it would close up and then on the Monday it would be closed. So he headed there amongst crowds and he squirreled himself away in this small storage closet that was adjacent to the Salon Carré and he sat there all night and into the morning of the following day. So around 14 hours by my estimation. Now, I don't know if after hours he came out. I very highly doubt it because there was security there all the time. So he sat in this tiny storage closet that was generally not used very often and he waited. Now, as we talked about at the start of the episode, Piquet, the maintenance director of the Louvre, as he walked through on his rounds at 7.30 the following morning and he remarked th to the colleague about the monetary value of the Mona Lisa, he then exited to go about his rounds. It was then that Perugia 
silently exited and made his move out of this little closet dressed in a maintenance worker's white smock and went directly dart made a beeline for the Mona Lisa basically moving really quickly he removed her case which was extremely heavy 200 pounds so around by my estimation what's that probably 120 kilograms um, a lot of people, this is one of the pieces of evidence that people point to that he had help and that somebody else was working with him. I don't know, to me, I think he probably did it with adrenaline. He probably he probably had done it before because he worked on the case. <clears throat> he then took it to the side stairwell and he stripped it down to just the painting, discarding the really heavy frame around it. So with just the painting, which was down to about 18 pounds, he then very quickly realised that he could not roll up the painting like you would a poster or a canvas because of what it was crafted onto, which was that poplar, that wood grain backing. So he stuffed it in its entirety up his smock and he headed for the door at the bottom of the stairwell with a key that he'd actually had since he had worked there. But he found that the key did not work. They'd probably changed the lock since then. And finding the stairwell door locked and no way out, he panicked as he heard the footsteps of the plumber that would ultimately come upon him in this stairwell. And he was fiddling around with a screwdriver that he'd bought with him, trying desperately to open this door before someone arrived. And in this process, he took the doorknob off. This was just in time for the plumber to arrive, which we talked about at the start of the episode. He then was able to get out of the Louvre undetected with the Mona Lisa stuffed up his smock. He hit the street. He threw the doorknob into the ditch with the one fingerprint on him, on it that matched him later on. And his mugshot was ultimately taken upon his arrest flash forward in Florence, which is the episode photo for Spotify if you're listening, but I'll also put it on the episode page on unknownpassagepodcast.com as well as in the Patreon. To describe Vincenzo Perugia, he's basically, uh, his police arrest record says he was five foot three, so a tiny guy. He's slim. Um, he It's weird because Jerry says in Vanity Fair that he's tall and slim, but he wasn't. He was five foot three, but it was him. Um, he was a basically a hipster of 1911, which <laughs> actually looking at pictures of Leonardo da Vinci, I think hipsters, it always comes back around um, because any of them could be considered hipsters in a way. Um, but he's got a pretty hectic uh, dark moustache, black moustache. He's got neat hair. He's got kind of like empty eyes in a way uh, in his mug shot. He's just a guy, really. I don't even know how to describe him. Kind of looks like Luigi. According to The Guardian, after he got it back to his apartment in Paris, he kept the Mona Lisa in a cupboard for a time, uh, then under in a cupboard under his stove, which is really concerning. And even at one point, he was so ballsy that he kept it on his mantelpiece. Then he started finding it difficult to live with the Mona Lisa, as The Guardian puts it. And I think he was starting to feel the heat. He tried to sell her a number of times, which he openly confessed to when he was arrested, including at one point to a British buyer, um, to no avail. And finally, this is when he wrote to Jerry in a last-ditch attempt to try to get money for this piece. It seems that when he took her, he didn't really 
think beyond the initial taking, which I kind of think he never thought that he'd get away with it, so he didn't think beyond that. In June of 1914, he stood trial for the theft in Florence. Paris actually, the French never tried to extradite him. They actually left it to Florence to put him on trial. And he was pissed off to discover that Alfredo Gerry, the international art dealer who had been one half of the men who had nabbed him, actually got one of the rewards. This reward was yet another one put forward, this time by a society that was closely linked to the Louvre. And it was a society of art lovers that had raised money for a reward and it was 25,000 francs and Alfredo Jerry got that. Now, I don't know why Poggy didn't get it. I think it was probably because Jerry got the initial letter and acted on it. And he also got a really nice title in France, like an honorary title. And this probably pissed, you know, Perugia off, not only because he was getting rewards, but on top of that, an Italian was getting titles in France. And we all know how Parisia felt about France by this point. But just in case you think that Jerry was a good guy through and through, um, I don't think anyone is in these stories because sadly, Jerry ended up getting really greedy. It wasn't enough for him. The worldwide acclaim for finding the Mona Lisa, this big reward sum that he was given all of and this honorary title in France. He sued the French government really quickly for 10% of the value of the Mona Lisa. And if you're wondering how he can possibly do that, Vanity Fair explained why. Quote, his contention was based on a Gallic tradition that gave the finder of lost property a reward of one-tenth the value of the object. In the end, the court decided that the painting was beyond price and that Jerry had only acted as an honest citizen should. He received no further reward, unquote, which is good because he would have ended up with a fortune and he was basing it on a very, very old law that didn't really exist anymore, but someone had, he clearly had went and got a lawyer pretty quickly and they thought, we'll try this one. By the time he was in jail, Perugia was no longer cool and calm. He was depressed. Guard said he regularly cried in jail. And when he would go to court, he would lash out, yell and bang his fist uh, and just get really fired up. He really wanted his opportunity to talk and he really wanted it seemed to be seen as a as a hero in Italy, which quite a lot of people saw him as that. By this time of his trial, he was 32 years old. The trial was very straightforward, really, as Perugia had confessed upon his arrest and, you know, it was just basically going through the motions. He was allowed ample time to describe why and how he had done what he'd done, but why and how he had done what he'd done. But one of the things that he changed in the story was really strange. His initial confession basically said that on the Sunday night he had slipped in and stayed overnight and then made his move on the Monday morning at the Louvre. But the only part of the story that he changed in the trial in Florence was that he said that he had come in on the Monday morning and done it there and then. And it just seems like a really strange part to change and people always question why he would change this seemingly pointless part of the story. And a lot of people read into it that he was working with other people and 
trying to protect them, but no one was looking for other people. No investigators. Once they got Perugia, that was that. So it just seems weird that he would change this part. But he did say in his trial that he did it because all Italian works in the Louvre were in fact stolen. And he backed this up by saying that when he had been contracted to work at the Louvre, he had seen documents that proved it. And the document that he referred to is a book that he had seen in the Louvre with basically drawings within it that showed, quote, a cart pulled by two oxen loaded with paintings, statues, other works of art, things that were leaving Italy and going to France, unquote. So his entire reason for doing it was a drawing that could have been anything that was someone's depiction of an event that didn't actually happen and he kind of ran with that. Um, He said he didn't initially consider taking the Mona Lisa. He was actually going to take another piece, probably a Raphael, but he actually said to the court that the reason he chose the Mona Lisa was because she was the smallest piece and the most portable. But the court asked him, are you sure you didn't do it because it was the most expensive piece in the world? And he maintained no. Uh, He basically said having her was really hard because it was virtually impossible to offload because she was so well known. He was asked then if it was in fact true what he'd confessed to openly that he'd try to sell the piece, including once to England. And at this point when they bought this up, he got so mad. But then he relented and basically confessed to that too. So it kind of strikes off the fact that he did it to return her to Italy and that was he was a patriot, patriot and all these things. I think at his core he was an art thief who wanted to make money from it and this whole I'm a patriot thing came to him later. Ultimately, he was sentenced to one year and 15 days in prison and as he was let out of the courtroom to jail, he said, quote, it could have been worse, unquote, which is true, it could have been. He tried to appeal and actually his appeal was successful in reducing his sentence to seven months and due to the fact that he'd already served over seven months in prison, he was immediately released and after that he quickly faded into obscurity. The shot that started World War II, that was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, I believe in Serbia, that was when he was assassinated and that kicked off, sorry, World War I, had happened recently and so the world's news was focused on what was happening with World War I. And after that, Vincenzo Perugia seemingly went into the Italian army to fight in World War I. According to um, Mona Lisa Missing, who is really the only source that has any further information on his life, he was captured by the enemy during the First World War and he was held as a POW for two years. After the war ended, he was released where he went on to get married and he had one daughter who he named Celestina. There's a few quotes from her floating around. He then bizarrely returned to France and Paris to live, the place that he claimed he hated so much. And it seems like such a strange move to do that. And there he continued to work as a painter and decorator. 
he tried to slip under the radar because his name was so well known, particularly in France. So he took on his birth name instead of Vincenzo and he dropped the Vincenzo and went by Pietro Perugia. What we do know is that he died in France of a heart attack on his 44th birthday. Sorry, guys, that wrapped up pretty quickly there. The postman knocked on my door and got the wrong address. It's bucketing rain out there. Um, sorry about that, and I just don't feel like editing it, to be honest. Um, but, yeah, Vincenzo Perugia died on his 44th birthday, uh, which was October 8th. 1925 leaving behind his daughter and his wife so a very kind of tragic life but in a way uh, a life that you know these certain people come uh on last podcast on the left recently they were talking about um in regards to Jack Ruby who killed Lee Harvey Oswald who most believe shot JFK and and how these people come, they pop up in history and serve funny little purposes, but they solidify themselves in history. And Vincenzo Prugia is kind of like a Jack Ruby to me. He did something thinking he would be seen as a hero, but then everyone was kind of like, oh, we'd rather you didn't do that, dude. <laughs> like, um, But no one got hurt in this story. So that's good. Um, now, the one little side story that I guess people, if they know this story, will get mad at me if I don't mention, uh, was the story that he didn't work alone. And the thing is, there's no evidence that this ever happened. But if I don't read it, you, there'll be a whole part missing. So basically, there's a big conspiracy for 111 years now or 110 years that Vincenzo Perugia was basically one of a team of people who stole the Mona Lisa. Now, I personally think he worked alone. I think he picked up the case. I think he was a little dude, uh, but I'm sure that he had, you know, through his painting and stuff, I'm sure he had tough arms. Um, but a lot of people say that because of the weight of the frame and things like that, uh, that was really the only evidence they had that he may have had help. And that's not really a lot of evidence. But then, like 20 years after the theft, a story came out that kind of re-energised people's theory that he did not work alone. And he was dead by this point, so he could never kind of speak on it. And then we talk about Jerry and how he thinks that when he first spoke to Perugia that he was being kind of squirrely when it came to his answer if he worked alone. But I've tried to put this into a concise way that very quickly and basically explains the story behind how he didn't, the theory that he didn't work alone. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't break it down. So luckily on MonaLisaMissing.com, they've got a short excerpt that explains it really concisely. And if you want to read more about this massive theory that goes pages and pages, the Vanity Fair article went into great depth on this, but I'm not going to because there's other parts of this story I want to hit before we wrap up this episode. So basically, this is the theory, courtesy of MonaLisaMissing.com, that the theft was actually part of a greater operation orchestrated by a con man named Velfiano to sell Mona Lisa forgeries. Quote, this is a well-known story and it has no basis in fact. It first appeared more than 20 years after the theft in the June 
1932 issue of the Saturday Evening Post. The article was written by a journalist named Carl Decker, who claimed that he was told the story by the man behind the crime, a shadowy con man who went by the name of Marques Eduardo Delfiano, or Delfiano, Valfiano. Valfiano allegedly had a forger named Yves Chaudron make a perfect copy of the Mona Lisa, and from that he made six more. Valfiano then lined up six gullible American millionaires who were eager to buy the original. The con men paid Perugia and two associates to steal the Mona Lisa from the Louvre. Valfiano was then able to palm off the copies as the real thing. The problem is that Valfiano, Chadron and the six copies have never been known to exist. In our research, we found a number of articles about other art thefts from which we believe Carl Decker extracted material to concoct this story. Decker was trained as a journalist under William Randolph Hearst, so he wasn't above exaggerating or spinning fiction into fact. In our opinion, the Valfiano story is a complete fabrication, unquote, and that nails exactly what I think, although Vanity Fair makes it seem like it's fact, which it's really not. And also the story makes no sense anyway. Um, they believe that he worked alone. Most people do, um, and I do as well. Uh, so I guess it's really up to you what you think. But throughout history, the Mona Lisa has not been left alone. When she was put back into her home in 1914, you would think that she would live a very comfortable life there. And in fact, she was then put into her own room, which is the room she's in today. There's really nothing else in this big gallery in front of the Mona Lisa or next to her. All there is is just hordes of tourists and then kind of like a barrier so you can't really get within a few feet of her and then a massive glass case that is continually worked on and then the tiny Mona Lisa behind the glass case but I'm going to take you through quickly a few vandalisms of the Mona Lisa which have unfortunately happened in the last hundred years and then I'm going to wrap up with a cool little mini story about how during World War II the Louvre took the safety of her really seriously. In 1956, two attempts were made on the Mona Lisa. One vandal, who was a Frenchman, took a razor blade uh, to the Mona Lisa and was unable to get to her because of the glass around her. Thank God. This is like aeroplane glass. <laughs> like no one can get through it. I'm pretty sure it's bulletproof as well. The second one was a Bolivian man who went there in 1956 and hurled a rock at the Mona Lisa. Now, his name was Hugo Unyaga Villegas, and he said at the time about why he did what he did, quote, I had a stone in my pocket and suddenly the idea to throw it came to mind, unquote. So it's kind of like that you suddenly feel like veering off the road or doing something really random. I don't think that it just suddenly came to his mind. I'm pretty sure he planned on doing it. The glass saved Mona in this instance, except one tiny little speck of paint came off and they were very easily able to fix it, the conservationists there. In 1974, for some reason, the Louvre decided for the first time to tour the Mona Lisa um, across the world. And she was in Tokyo in 1974 when over one million people visited her in Tokyo. And a 25-year-old Japanese woman called Tomoko Yonezu uh, took some red spray paint along 
and decided to spray paint the canvas red um, as some sort of weird political statement which made no sense so I'm not even going to get into it. She actually managed to get between 20 and 30 drops of red spray paint onto the painting but in the end they were able to save it and the Mona Lisa was spared and I think she was let off with a pretty lenient sentence. In 2009, a Russian woman visited the Louvre where the Mona Lisa was back at um, and she threw a teacup that she just randomly had in her handbag against the painting. Seems that people just suddenly feel like throwing things at it when they see it. That's their story. We all know that they actually bring stuff for a reason. Uh, she came with the cup in her bag and she'd let loose because her th- her story was she'd been denied citizenship to France um, as a Russian. And so why not, instead of going through the process of, you know, becoming a citizen in all the right channels, why not just throw a teacup against the most famous piece of artwork in the world and really piss the French off? Um, and it was this incident that finally had the Mona Lisa move to her own highly secure part of the Louvre, where the glass was then upgraded again and she has her own security as well. But just six weeks ago in May not, 1922, a man disguised as an old woman wheeling in a wheelchair took a cake and smeared it all over the Mona Lisa. Now, this is kind of stupid because anybody with two brain cells, especially going to the Louvre, knows that the Mona Lisa is under some pretty hectic glass and behind a pretty hectic frame. But he was able to get next to it, which is kind of concerning. Now, I don't know if this was like a performance art piece, um, but they managed to get a cake into the Louvre When you enter these places like the Vatican and things, you go through like metal detectors and stuff. So generally you can't get knives and things like that in there. But that was the last attempt. And let's just leave her alone from now on. A girl, she needs a break and uh, she just wants to be left alone. People gawking at her all the time. People staring at her. People writing about her. People talking about her. Um, And she just wants to chill. Yeah. So... Now I'm going to finish with a little mini story, which I think is cool, um, about the, the workers of the Louvre uh, at the start of World War II. So I wanted to wrap up with this story because it's one of my favourite kind of, I guess, World War II stories in the sense that not many people have heard of it and even I hadn't, not even at the time that I'd been to Paris, it was only a few years ago where I just by chance saw a random documentary about this man and this feat that he pulled off and I just wondered why people like this aren't known outside, you know, they should be household names, they're amazing considering how many people go to the Louvre every year. Um, but I'm going to tell you about a man called Jacques Jojard. Uh, but first, I'm just going to give you a bit of background uh, for this part about France during World War Two. In mid-1940, parts of France fell to Nazi Germany and the country was essentially in short, which is <laughs> really complicated. It was divided into occupied 
France and Vichy France, uh, where essentially occupied was most of the northern reaches and it was parts of France that had often been contested, including uh, the Alsace region, which Strasbourg falls into right up in northern France, um, and Vichy France, which in short, the local governments pretty much towed the line and said, we'll go along with whatever as long as you're not in our city. But eventually uh, the Nazis took over most of metropolitan France and there were only parts where people could hide out. The Nazis, as most people know, if they know anything about them, one of the things that they actually appreciated because it wasn't human life was art. There's actually an entire arm of various government agencies, including the FBI and the Mossad, that still works to recover stolen Nazi art. The term that they used was Nazi plundering. They would plunder museums and private collections across Europe uh, in order to basically put together the largest collection of art in the world that was just for the Third Reich. And I have episodes planned about this at some point in the future, so I will go into more depth then. In fact, the Nazis had their own arm of the Nazi party just to target and loot artworks and they had massive lists of famous artworks, where they were, uh, the value and how they were going to basically get them. Museums were being emptied across Europe and when you travel across Europe and if you visit museums, there's often information about that in tours you can do and things like that. Um, and the Nazis really respected a lot of, um, in particular, architecture and art. When I was in Krakow, uh, I did a walking tour of a city and uh, she talked about how uh, Hitler really loved the architecture, the Nazis really loved the architecture of Krakow but not of Warsaw, so they didn't care that Warsaw was flattened during the war by bombs, but they asked not to do that to uh, Krakow and that's why it remained pretty unscathed in the sense that it wasn't bombed. Same goes for Florence. Um, There's a famous bridge in Florence uh, called the Ponte Vecchio and it was like a thousand years old. You can still walk across it and most of you probably have if you've been to Florence. And Hitler specifically would ask not to bomb specific bridges and things that he enjoyed the architecture of and things like that. And there's a lot of sadly photos of him posing in front of different things, including the Eiffel Tower when they ultimately uh, made it to Paris, which was on June 14th uh, when 1940 when Parisians woke to hear German being spoken over loudspeakers out in the streets instead of French. And Germany would then occupy Paris until August of 1944, which was a very long four years for Parisians as well as every other person in Europe who wasn't benefiting from the Nazi regime. Now, the French have historically got a lot of flack. I noticed this uh, from the English, in particular, historically, the English have issues with the French uh, and some Americans, even though uh, France, you know, gifted America, uh, America the Statue of Liberty and there's um, replicas in, in Paris and things like that. Um, but they've historically, from a lot of countries, got a lot of flack for giving up easily or waving a white flag very early on in battles. And you hear this um, a lot, but... 
I don't think that that's the case. I love the French. I think they're wonderful. And I think a lot of the stereotypes just aren't fair um, about the French. They're, yes, they're aloof. Uh, I don't. I find them great. I don't think they're rude at all. I just think they have a lot of pride in, in this their country um, and their way of life. But in this instance, the Louvre staff were not going down without a fight and they knew that the Germans were plundering museums across Europe. They were already aware of this even before war broke out that this was going to be the plan because Hitler had been in since 1933 and a lot of his plans were made uh, pretty public Um, and the Louvre were not going to tolerate this. Now, just in short, uh, to give you an idea of how the French suffered um, under during the Holocaust and during World War II, uh, which I'll talk about more in future episodes, I guess, if it comes up. But half a million French people would die during World War II, both military and civilian deaths. Deportation of the French Jewish population began in 1942 to concentration camps, most of them in the east, including Auschwitz, uh, and Bergen-Belsen and uh, Treblinka and a lot of other very notorious camps. And that will continue into mid-1944 when the Germans started getting scared and instead of uh, killing people, they started moving towards shredding documents and kind of making a run for it um, as the Russians advanced on one side, the Americans uh, on another towards Dachau uh, and the English on the other front. At the time of the invasion of Paris by the Nazis, there were 340,000 Jewish people living in metropolitan France. Um, And at the end of the war, the statistic was that around 75,000 of those had been deported to death camps. And out of that 75,000 that went to death camps, around 72,500 had been murdered. So uh, around 3,000 actually survived the camps once they got there. But actually, um, 75,000 out of 340,000, that actually statistically makes France, they have the highest Jewish survival rate of all of Europe uh, during the war. Um, and actually, they also have the, the one of the highest numbers of citizens who have received the uh, Righteous Among the Nations Award, which is given by um, what's Yad Vashem in uh, Israel. It's basically an award that non-Jews get um, in order, based on actions that they've taken to save Jews during the Holocaust. And famously, one of those who received that and was buried in Israel was Oscar Schindler, uh, which Schindler's List is about. But France, because they were total badasses and they had the French resistance, which were some of the coolest toughest men and women on the face of the planet in history. Um, That's why they received so many righteous among the nations. And if you ever want to be inspired or just or just read incredible stories, watch interviews with people who were in the French resistance. They're just they're just incredible. Um, And I've got some pictures that I'll put up in Patreon, but some of the pictures of in particular, the female resistance were they're just amazing. There's a really famous one of a woman completely, she's got suspenders on, she's got shorts on, uh, she's got a little French striped top on, she's got her lipstick on, hair's all coiffed, 
got a beret on, which was kind of came into prominence, especially during uh, the World Wars as a result of it being military garb. Um, and she's holding like a machine gun. It's it's one of the coolest pictures ever. And men and women were both in uh, the resistance. So one particular roundup, a lot of people think, I guess, when they think of people being moved to ghettos or uh, liquidation of ghettos or liquidation of areas, and that's not my term, that's what it was called, especially the liquidation of the uh, Jewish ghetto in Krakow, which is depicted very in a very raw way in Schindler's List. Uh, there were deep, mass deportations in France and Paris, but one of the biggest ones took place literally not far from the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Um, this was called the Valdive Roundup, which is um, otherwise known as the Valendrome Dither. And it happened uh, over the 16th and 17th of July, 1942. This was the biggest mass arrest of Jewish families. And it was orchestrated by the French police who, like many countries, you know, the police ended up just going with what the Nazis asked them to do, whether they wanted to or not. A lot of people wanted to, a lot of people um, felt they had no other choice to save their own families. But basically this had been a velodrome that was like used for winter sports uh, and people were rounded up there. And um, I don't have the exact number here, but I believe it was about 30,000 over these two days. And that was one of the largest roundups um, in French history. And then they were sent on cattle cars to death camps. President Jacques Chirac uh, in France in 1995 actually apologised particularly for the Valdiv Roundup. Now, in 1940, France's director of national museums was a man named, a man named Jacques Jojard and he oversaw all of France's museums and there's a huge amount. There's like 300 just in Paris now. So uh, he basically was... Um, I think he was like an, a really high up art curator who knew everything about art there was to know. He was the king of cool, pretty much extremely French. Every photo of him, he has a cigarette in one hand in his portraits. Um, and by the time of the Nazi occupation of Paris, he was in his mid 40s. He already saw the writing on the wall pretty much when Hitler first came to power in the early 1930s. And even before the onset of the war, he was aware that they were going to basically plunder museums across Europe. And he was not going to let that shit happen on his watch. Now, when the Nazis invaded Paris in June 1940, Hitler and his senior goons would have big parades uh, through the streets where basically people would be forced to turn up even if they didn't agree with what was happening and that was a large number of people um, but a lot of people just had to keep on you know uh, for their own safety um, and he, him and his senior goons there's pictures of them posed in front of the Eiffel Tower uh, like they're on holidays. Hitler was very interested in Paris from the time that he was a young art student he actually always wanted to go to art school in Paris, but because he couldn't even get into one um, at home in Vienna, there was no chance he was going to get into one in Paris. So I think Paris to him was a bit of a thorn in his side and he probably got quite a lot of uh, enjoyment from invading with his goons. Um, and of course, because he was such a big art lover and him and 
uh, Goering and Goebbels were kind of the three main henchmen who oversaw the Nazi plundering of art. Of course, one of the first things on their list to do was to head to the Louvre, Hitler rubbing his um, hands together in pure glee. Once inside, they expected to be met with riches beyond their wildest dreams. But, and I can't help but smile every time I think about this, when they stepped inside, the museum was almost empty empty frames just lying on the ground, barely any artwork, just very basic pieces that were not on the Nazis' list of valuable pieces. And as they went room to room in this massive museum, they realised that they had been fucked over. In fact, the Louvre had not had most of its valuable works for around a year, and that is because of Jacques Jojard. But some pieces remained, less valuable pieces, and oddly, the Nazis were thrilled to see that the Venus de Milo was still there. Now, I there's a really good um, source I used for this part called thecollector.com, which is a kind of art expert who has a really interesting blog. Um, and I knew about the a few of these incidents, but they happened to fill in the gaps. And I didn't know this. And I've got a picture with the Venus de Milo. Um, and I've always found her fascinating. She's a mysterious statue of a woman that washed up on a beach in a, in Greece. And it dates back about 2000 years, this statue, and she doesn't have any arms. And she's arguably behind the Mona Lisa, the Louvre's second most famous and valuable piece. And she's called the Venus de Milo. Now, as the Nazis came across the Venus de Milo, they were thrilled that she was still there. Um, but don't think that Jacques Jojard had left this in his haste to empty out the Louvre, he'd actually just replaced the Venus de Milo with a plaster copy. How good is that? During the Spanish Civil War, Jacques Jojard had cut his teeth in the realm of hiding artwork uh, when Madrid was being bombed and Madrid's most famous museum is called the Prado. You can still visit it today. He had overseen the hiding of many of the pieces in the Prado. He was able to get them across to Switzerland. So he knew exactly how to do this. Now, he was actually a civil servant being a director of public museums for the country of France. Um, so he was being paid for by the government. So technically he was at the behest of whatever the government told him to do. And at the time, the French government was basically going along with whatever the Nazis said. So he essentially screwed over both the Nazis and his own bosses as well. The previous summer, starting in August 1939, the Louvre had strangely closed for three days. Jacques Chajard said that it was for repairs to different pieces and they wanted to do it all in one go um, and repairs to the actual museum as well. And because war was pretty much being um, announced throughout Europe, people weren't really paying attention to going to visit museums and things like that. So no one really thought much of it. 
Jojard made it pretty clear that lots of repairmen and different trucks and things bringing brand new things to update the Louvre would be coming to overhaul the museum over that three days to a week when it would be closed. And over this period, people would see around 200 trucks coming and going from the front of the Louvre and staff would be bringing things out all covered in blankets. And because war was, uh, you know, being declared and uh, Poland was basically being invaded uh, and people were cutting costs because they weren't going to the museum and just wandering past, they probably just thought, you know, maybe they are doing some updates, although I'm sure that some people knew what was going on. On August 28th, 1939, the Mona Lisa left the Louvre and by September 3rd, um, as war was being declared, a decision was made um, to ensure that by the end of that day, all of the most precious works within the Louvre would be gone. The Mona Lisa was on the road by this point and most likely in her first home of many during the war. Over time, Jacques Jojard and his Louvre staff moved almost 4,000 pieces out of this massive museum. Some are so huge. I've got pictures. There's so many great pictures that they took to document this because they wanted to know where it was, what condition it was in. At his core, he was still a curator, so he needed to know exactly that they were looked after, packaged well, wrapped up properly, and they worked pretty much 24-hour shifts to make sure this happened over the course of between three days and a week to do as much as they could, starting with the most valuable pieces and then working their way down. And of course, Mona was the first one to be shipped out. Some of the, in the pictures of the empty frames, which just makes me laugh when you think of the Nazis turning up and Hitler turning up and his face dropping seeing them. One of the frames which held a Rembrandt is so huge. It is the size of a wall. You have to wonder how they did it. But Jacques Chajar did not work alone. His main curators that he worked with, who basically worked throughout this part of the onset of war and risked their own lives, were men called Germain Bazin, André Shamsen and René Huyi. Now that's H-U-Y-G-H-E, so don't hold it against me. But also a woman who is incredible played a role in this. She was a woman called Rose Valland, who should be a household name across the world. She was a French art historian. She was a member of the resistance. She was a captain in the French military. And she had she was one of the most decorated military women in French history, which is incredible. It's like her and Joan of Arc. Um, she basically had helped Jojar um, come up with this whole plan to get these pieces out of the Louvre and that she was so unassuming and so not obvious that the Nazis had no idea when even working with her closely which they continued to do throughout the war and with Jojar that she was actually a member of the French resistance to the point that they kept her on at the Louvre and when they started filling the Louvre up with plundered pieces from private um private collections from Jewish families and otherwise, um, they would ask her to document it all, but she would be documenting it 
so that she knew exactly what they'd stolen. And she did this throughout the whole war. Uh, she secretly recorded like conversations, uh, you know, with the Nazis doing this. They were very open with her as to what was stolen and what wasn't. And she documented what families they came from and things of things like that. And because of Rose Valland, she actually saved thousands of works of art through her work. One of the things I found uh, just randomly in another source that just blew me away about Rose Valland on top of the, all these things that she'd achieved was that she was openly gay <laughs> during the war and lived with her girlfriend for decades after from the war, the Second World War onwards, her her partner was... Um, a British woman who'd done similar things for Britain during the war and um, she just lived life on the edge in every single way that she could have been found, you know, she could have been sent to prison for so many different things and Rose Valland just lived life her way. So each of the pieces of art were put into crates. They were wrapped very carefully overnight generally. And each of the crates were marked with a different colour coordinate according to how important the pieces within the crate were. A yellow circle meant it was very valuable. Green meant it was major. And red meant it was a world treasure. And the Mona Lisa was in her own crate with three red circles on it. The trucks were then, one by one, left Paris and were lost in the masses of cars of people leaving Paris as word got out that eventually the Nazis who had taken parts of northern France were eventually going to invade the capital. Joja made it so that each truck had to be accompanied by a curator and he even got people helping from nearby department stores. Basically, at the on before the onset of war, in the middle of the night, he got together security guards, staff, people who worked at nearby shops, all of his curators, and he basically said, this is what we're going to do. If you don't want to help, leave now and we understand. Um, but if you want to do this and you're with us, you're with us. And everybody helped, even like local women working in department stores nearby came across because they were like, yeah, we're going to save this art. And each truck he made sure a curator had to be with it. Now he only had five curators on staff at the Louvre. Uh, so they were basically going back and forth, back and forth with these trucks to ensure that the temperature was right, all of these different facets of looking after it and to make sure that the truck just didn't disappear on route to where it was going. And he orchestrated it so that he knew where each one was at any time, whether it was in France or abroad. And we do know a few of the places he made sure to have these arts artworks taken to in France. But because Joja never, to the, his dying day, gave up all the details of what happened to these pieces during the war, we don't have all the details, but it was a lot of chateaus in southern France that weren't occupied by this time. Um, in actually the Loire Valley, which is actually where Leonardo da Vinci lived out his days, which I found was interesting. Um, when one particular curator was hesitant about helping with this, Joja apparently said to him, according to the collector.com, quote, since the noise of cannons frightens you, I will go myself then, unquote. But he didn't. Another curator volunteered. So he was basically orchestrating it from the Louvre. 
Throughout the war, the valuable pieces were moved from place to place. Whenever Zsa would get a heads up that Nazis were advancing on a certain chateau, suddenly those pieces were gone. The Mona Lisa went to the Chateau Chambord in the Loire Valley for a time, and then numerous abbeys and castles throughout France and maybe abroad. Again, we don't know because Zsa has always been super private about that. On top of all this work, Zsa also made sure that private art collections, many of them belonging to Jewish families, were safeguarded and that these pieces were taken away and kept safe for the family should they return. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the ones that were sent away to death camps didn't return. But he was a good man. Unfortunately, of course, the workers couldn't save all the works. Many of them are still missing today um, from the ones that were left behind in the Louvre. But every single piece that was taken away and hidden during the course of the war was returned in completely perfect condition. And that is a testament to Zsa and his team. But during the Nazi occupation, the Nazis actually kept the Louvre open and they refilled it with stolen private collections, many of them from Jewish families. But actually, Zsa had an unexpected helper who wore a Nazi uniform. His name was Count Franz Wolf Metternich. Now, Metternich, before the war, had been an art historian by trade. Many Nazis were had just regular jobs. Um, people forget that there were millions of members of the Nazi parties. People were registered members, but it doesn't mean you were dragging people off cattle cars at Auschwitz. Uh, that, I think that's like a common misconception. You were a regi- registered member of the party. And Metternich had been a art historian by trade before the war, and he had begrudgingly signed up to the Nazi party. But he was kind of like Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music in a way. He was on his face, a Nazi party member, kind of like Oskar Schindler, but inside he absolutely was not. In fact, very soon after being sent to Paris to basically work with Zsa in a role that was essentially to oversee the plundering of French artwork by the Nazis, he ended up finding out very quickly that these 4,000 pieces were missing and very quickly Zsa was forced to give up their locations. Uh, Metternich actually went and saw each of them, each of the pieces himself in each of the locations they were in across France and beyond and despite this he never said a word to anyone about where they were. At every turn he threw off Hitler, Goebbels and Goering Uh, when they would ask if he knew where these things were. And at one point he even got sacked in his role because he had like a screaming match with Goebbels, which you did not take on that little troll. Like he was a little weakling, but he'd have someone else kill you. He was, even though he was a Nazi, he was kind of such a redeemable person in terms of what he did and he was never on the front lines in concentration camps or killing anyone or anything like that. His whole job was just sent to France to oversee uh, artwork. Each time someone feared being sent to Germany, uh, Zsa would basically sign a work permit so that they could stay under the proviso that they worked at the Louvre. 
One curator was actually at one point arrested by the Gestapo and Metternich, the Nazi, signed a permit saying that they needed him at the Louvre and to let him go, um, and they did. According to thecollector.com, quote, after the war, Metternich was given the Légion d'Honneur by General de Gaulle. It was for having protected our art treasures from the appetite of the Nazis and Goering in particular. In those difficult circumstances, sometimes alerted in the middle of the night by our curators, Count Metternich always intervened in the most courageous and efficient way. It is in great part thanks to him that many artworks escaped the occupant's greediness, unquote. Jauger would ultimately have to hide in the later parts of the war in southern France um, as the Allies advanced, though, towards the end of the war. Uh, Jacques desperately, Jacques Jauger desperately tried to contact them to let them know where these 4,000 pieces were so that these chateaus and abbeys that they were in were not bombed by the Allies, um, like, you know, uh, the English, the Americans, and that's what was happening in France at that time. And right the day before D-Day, the D-Day landings um, in France, they finally received the coordinates that he sent through. They actually communicated with him via BBC radio to let him know that they had them. And the message that, that was broadcast just randomly on BBC radio, which would have made no sense to anyone except for Jacques Jauger listening in the south of France was La Jaconde à le soirier. And that means the Mona Lisa is smiling. During the liberation of Paris, the Louvre courtyard was actually used as a prison for German soldiers. And you can still see um, gunshots in the exterior of the Louvre in certain parts where there would be sh uh, shootouts with German soldiers attempting to flee. But as I said earlier, every single one of the 4,000 pieces that had been spirited away in the dead of night by Jacques Jauger and his team were returned unscathed to the Louvre and there they are today including the Mona Lisa where she continues to smile and she has been through a lot and seen a lot. Jacques Jauger remained pretty tight-lipped for the rest of his life about how the occupation, the operation happened, where the pieces went he actually ended up marrying a French resistance, an actress who was in the French resistance, which is very inglorious bastards like. And he lived the rest of his life with her um, because they both met through their resistance efforts. He ended up being given the resistance medal, uh, the officer of the Legion of Honour and became a member of the Academy of Fine Arts. And he basically is, he got some of the highest honours during the war. His name is also inscribed um, on the walls of the Louvre near the entrance to the Louvre School uh, where students learn. Jacques Chaget died in 1967 in Paris at the age of 71. Rose Valland died in 1980 at 82 in Paris. And I hope that you enjoyed that little kind of addendum because I just, they're just the best. Those two, all of them, all the people who worked um, to, to save those pieces of art because if the Nazis had their way, it would all be gone. And 
these pieces are so important to history, you know. Uh, da Vinci never could have known when he was painting that all of the different experiences and adventures the Mona Lisa would go on and he never would have known, you know, in 1505 that she would be so respected and loved and worth so much that people would put their lives on the line to hide her from people who wanted to to destroy her ultimately. Uh, it's just incredible. So I hope that if you ever go to the Louvre and you see the Mona Lisa, all these stories I've told you over these two parts um, kind of ring in your ears a little bit um, and all the different people who played roles in getting her to where she is, you know, and taking her away from it and returning her and taking her away from it and returning her. Um, I don't know if I'll ever get back to the Louvre. I've been to Paris twice and I've been to the Louvre both times and seen her and who knows if I'll ever make it back to Paris. Um, I would love to, but I wish I kind of knew all this before I'd, I'd seen her. So I know a lot of you have contacted me and said that you're going on holidays to Europe this summer. And um, yeah, if you, if you swing by and see Mona, um, give her my regards. So I hope that you've enjoyed these two parters. It's been fun and super interesting and it's put a smile on my face actually and kind of taken me away from a bit of the doom and gloom. Um, there's lots of documentaries online about Paris during the Holocaust and the the saving of all of these pieces of art. Um, I suggest watching them because they've just got such cool uh, visuals, uh, film and photos of them moving them away, pulley systems that they made and all this cool stuff. So... I will put up uh, the rest of the episode page at unknownpassagepodcast.com um, later today or this weekend. Uh, you can become a patron at links off the website or on the Patreon app to search for Unknown Passage. Um, there's various tiers. Anything up to $5 gets a shout out and anything over $5 gets a shout out and a location of choice for an upcoming episode. This was Valerie's. As Valerie pointed out to me, it fits so perfectly for a number of reasons, including the fact that her cats are Italian. <laughs> so there we go. Um, hey, mambo, mambo italiano. Uh, but really, this was this was kind of French, really, with, with, a, with a dash of Italiano. Uh, leave a rating or review uh, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Um, if you'd like to contribute to the PayPal, it's unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. We don't have Venmo or Cash App or anything in Australia. It's not available. Um, I get asked that quite a lot, so I thought I'd say that. Um, and I think that's it. I will be back probably in a week, maybe two. I've got quite a lot coming up for myself. Uh, yeah. So I hope that you've enjoyed this. Have a brilliant weekend and I will talk to you soon. Ciao and bonsoir.